Today's episode is sponsored by Quick Stop Groceries. Come for their fine selection of cigarettes, eggs and milk. Stay for the stimulating discussion and award-winning customer service. Quick Stop Groceries. I assure you, they're open. Podcast, a comical and critical look at the world of cinema with me, Michael Clancy. It's episode 43 and it's a review special. Yes, with now 19 films inducted into the Hall of Fame, we have closed the hallowed halls for a week for some much needed renovations. Instead, I'm turning my attention to some films that are making a splash in the multiplexes as we speak. It's a tasty mix of big-budget blockbusters, grisly teen slashers, and thought-provoking indie films, as I bring you my thoughts on Avengers Age of Ultron, Unfriended, The Falling, and The Salvation. Alright, we're going to kick things off with the big dog, the head honcho. It's already made a Hulk-busting ton of cash in the box office, rendering my review somewhat redundant at this point. But we are talking Avengers Age of Ultron, Joss Whedon's superhero slobber knocker of a sequel, featuring, well, just about everybody. I'll give you an idea of the plot, but first, here's a bit of the trailer. I'm going to show you something beautiful. Everyone screaming for mercy. You want to protect the world, but you don't want it to change. You're all puppets. Tangled in strings. Strings. Nothing lasts forever. The film is Avengers Age of Ultron. It opens with Black Widow, Hawkeye and the rest of the superhero team having success in ridding the world of Hydra and their ominous presence. It opens on this big battle where they're trying to recover Loki's scepter. With one eye on retirement, Tony Stark convinces Bruce Banner to help him develop his new AI security system, Ultron, with the belief his robotic army will make the world safe once and for all. Unsurprisingly, the mad scientist plan backfires as Stark's nightmare creation comes to life and sees the only way to peace is through the destruction of the Avengers and with it the human race. Don't compare me with Stark. He's a sickness. Ah, Junior. You're gonna break your old man's heart. If I have to. Nobody has to break anything. Clearly you've never made an omelette. He beat me by one second. Ah, this is funny, Mr. Stark. 
It's what? Comfortable? Like old times? This was never my life. You two can still walk away from this. No, we will. You believe in peace, then let us keep it. I think you're confusing peace with quiet. Yeah, huh? What's the vibranium for? I'm glad you asked that because I wanted to take this time to explain my evil plan. This is the 11th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's a journey that began back in 2008, the first Iron Man film. And you have to admire the world that they have managed to create in those 10 films, uh, bringing us such diverse worlds and such interesting characters. And it's really the biggest success of the entire series is bringing these characters to life. I mean, you have to say in pretty much every role on the Avengers team, it does represent perfect casting. Chris Hemsworth was born to play Hulk with all his macho swaggering. Robert Downey Jr. is, of course, playboy billionaire Tony Stark, and he is the egomaniac that that role requires. Chris Evans is your all-American blue blood who's just perfect for the role of Captain America. And although it took a couple of misfires with a couple of dodgy films, Getting Mark Ruffalo in as Bruce Banner slash Incredible Hulk did prove to be a masterstroke. The series has also had great success in making the non-superhero characters so interesting. I mean, you just take the character of Black Widow, who could easily have been lost in the shuffle, and instead what you have is one of the series' most well-written and developed characters. And again, this is something that has carried on in Age of Ultron. It sees strengths in character that means even when the solo films fall a bit flat, like Iron Man 2 did and like Thor The Dark World did, there's still at least interesting characters at the heart of them. Bringing them together, of course, is where the biggest strength is, as we saw with the first Avengers film, as it is can carry it on now. The flip side to it being the 11th in the series, particularly in an action series, is just how you keep upping the ante when it comes to the third act action throwdown and it's a problem that they don't really overcome here in Age of Ultron. Uh, there's a distinct feeling that we've seen this all before. I mean we've seen it in the first Avengers film where it's just all of the Avengers up against this big kind of faceless army with lots lots of creative set pieces certainly but certainly things we've seen before as mentioned in the Avengers but also you get distinct feelings of Iron Man 3 and the closing action of uh, Captain America the Winter Soldier. It also lacks originality in terms of the issues raised with artificial intelligence. I mean, this is a hot topic at the moment, and it's covered in recent sci-fi films uh, like Ex Machina, which is in cinemas in America right now. And it has to be said, this film doesn't really begin to make the interesting points that those films have made. So uh, that in itself is a little bit of a letdown. You know, they could have gone a little bit further with this relevant subject matter. That being said, Ultron does make a serviceable big baddie. This is due largely in part to James Spader with his sinister purring that he does to provide the voice. His Ultron does possess this kind of megalomaniac tendencies and they're smattered with this dry, if slightly nasty sense of humour, uh, which is a fun throwback because he is truly Tony Stark's creation. What he isn't, unfortunately, is quite as strong a villain as Tom Hiddleston's Loki. His actions and his sinister plan don't quite live up to his massively creepy introduction. So all in all, it does make for a fairly decent, if not earth-shattering, summer blockbuster. It's funny that a film where cities are literally raised by an assortment of weird and wonderful creatures, that the most original part of proceedings is the care and investment that it puts into its characters, and indeed human life in general. After recent blockbusters like Man of Steel and pretty much every Transformers film where they blast bloody big chunks out of these highly densely populated areas with body counts in the thousands, it's nice to see a film where the heroes actually care about human life and actually make an effort to save, save just the, the regular person on the street. 
So, Avengers Age of Ultron is probably a more complete film than the first Avengers film. But I don't think it's as much fun, I don't think it's as enjoyable uh, in terms of a big blockbuster. It has to be said, Marvel's biggest challenge going forward, if this is anything to go by, is kind of changing up the formula a little bit and bringing us something a little bit different in that final third. And it'll be interesting to see how they do that with Ant-Man, which is, of course, out next year and kicks off this next stage in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Everyone creates the thing they dread. Men of peace create engines of war. Invaders create Avengers. People create... Smaller people? Children. I lost the word there. Children. Designed to supplant them. To help them... End. Is that why you've come? To end the Avengers? I've come to save the world. But also... Yeah. From a film where Earth's mightiest heroes travel the world saving the day to a film that unfolds just on the confines of a single computer screen, we're talking now of Unfriended, which is a new cyber horror from director Levan Gabriads. <laughs> I just tried to hang up on him. Can you get rid of this person? I don't know. Is this here the whole time? This is probably a glitch. Well, the glitch just typed. Who is doing this? This is Laura's account. Who would hack into a dead girl's account? Maybe it's Laura. All right, everyone, hands up right now. Who's doing this? Who posted the video? It wasn't me. Well, one of us did. The whole film unfolds on the laptop screen of Blair as she Googles iMessages, Spotify's and Skypes. During a group chat with her friends, a ghost from their past resurfaces, exposing their deepest secrets and terrorising them with sadistic games and demonic possession. So... What you have here is a film that bears a lot of the hallmarks of the found footage horror genre. You have this kind of young, unknown cast of, of smiley and mostly irritating teens. You have this kind of shaky, low-quality camera here. You know, usually it's depicted through the use of uh, handheld cameras. Here it's through the webcams on la- laptop screens. It's not a found footage film in the strictest sense. I and mean, that is probably a good thing considering how overdone that genre is. Rather than just having a bunch of gormless teens inexplicably filming everything you do, you have various functions of a MacBook helping you tell the story from the confines of your armchair. So, I mean, you, they have the use of webcams, which allow the teams to communicate despite all being in their own separate homes. You have YouTube videos, which get pulled up on screen to provide exposition when needed. And even they, they even use Spotify to allow for the use of background music, uh, which is called back later in the third act. Uh, it's a pretty creepy effect, it has to be said. So they use this kind of creative way of telling the story, and it's mixed in with a smattering of some genuinely nasty death scenes. Certainly, I was impressed with the creativity of the storytelling. I mean, it's not a completely original concept. In fact, even in the most recent series of Modern Family, they did an episode in this similar format. But despite that, I was very impressed by the creativity. I was also impressed by the points that they make about the dangers of living your life online. I mean, this 
demonic presence that is stalking these kids is actually a very effective metaphor for the relentless and brutal nature of cyberbullying. And just on a technical level, it is remarkably well edited to give the appearance that it's all unfolding in real time, and they do a good job of kind of closing those loops, so you, you don't really see the cracks where they've made those editing uh, decisions. Overall, I would say Unfriended is a film that's full of surprises. It is unexpectedly... It's unexpectedly darkly funny, uh, and with some clever writing as well. I mean, there's in the opening moments of the film, there's a scene where Blair and her boyfriend play around on Skype in your sort of typical awkward bit of webcam fun. So it opens with that, and you think it's just a bit of crass fun, a little bit of cheap uh, titillation before all the violence starts. But actually, that scene is called back later on when the horror is unfolding, and it's just this little five-second shot, and it's almost a respite from the violence that is going on. But it is deliciously dark and actually very poignant. And that's kind of testament to the clever writing, which is just kind of laced throughout the film. I think because of the ever-rapid expansion of technology, it's a film that probably won't stand the test of time particularly well, and occasionally lacks confidence in itself and kind of descends back into some more conventional generic tropes, you know, where someone's wandering through a darkened room waiting for something to jump out on them. But overall, as I say, it's a surprising film, and I think the biggest surprise for me is that I actually liked it so much because it is clever, it is very well done, and it makes some very interesting points about a very important subject matter in cyberbullying. So that's Unfriended. Uh, Colour me surprised, the biggest surprise of the week. Who's here? Close the door! Close the door! Close the door. Just hide! Why are you showing this? I didn't mean it! He swear! Oh, you swear? Man, what's going on? What is that? Can't talk to us! Next up for a review, we have The Falling from director Carol Morley. It comes this mysterious drama starring Game of Thrones regular Maisie William and newcomer Florence Pugh. Now have absolute silence. Sit. Stand. Silence in the corridors and the communal areas. Skirts no more than two inches from the ground when kneeling. If I were fly on the wall in your house, what would I see? Quite an influence on the others. You are not to fraternize with any of these girls. Who was the first person in your age group to show symptoms? You all know something is wrong. We're not kids anymore, love. Have you had sexual intercourse? Close your eyes. Kids fled. to the surface. Dangerous. Nobody knows who I am anymore. What I'm really like. What I think about doing.
Set within the restricting confines of a 1960s all-girls school, Williams and Pugh play Lydia, or Lamb as she is affectionately known, and Abby. The pair are inseparable best friends who struggle to conform to the school's strict expectations. Without giving too much away, early on tragedy occurs at the school, which leaves Lydia devastated and isolated. Shortly after this, she starts experiencing weird actions where her body goes into this kind of elaborate, almost euphoric swoon before she faints entirely. To begin with, everyone kind of thinks that she's putting it on and she doesn't get an awful lot of sympathy, but when other students and even a teacher at the school begin to suffer similar experiences, it becomes clear that there is more going on here. So this is a bizarre little film which I suspect will frustrate as many people as it will enthrall. On the one hand, it deals with a lot of issues which, for obvious reasons, if you see the film, will make people uncomfortable, and it often does so in a very frank and brutally unsettling way. There are elaborate sequences which go on throughout, almost like montage sequences, where you have this mysterious affliction taking over numerous characters. So you just have these scenes, these montages of people throwing themselves on the ground in very theatrical ways. It's the sort of scenes where, if taken out of context, could be the subject of ridicule. So it's a film that does require a certain amount of good faith going into it, and it's entirely possible that it will lose you even before it gets to the payoff. Which is a shame, because there is actually an awful lot going on here, which is of interest. In the early scenes between Lydia and Abby, we get this sense of a very close relationship, full of intimacy, but also this suggestion the two aren't really on a level playing field in terms of how they feel about each other. As the film develops, it looks at the effects that grief can have on a person, as well as the potential mass hysteria caused by grief in a community. On the flip side to that as well, though, it kind of examines the power of the cult of personality. So it's got lots of interesting things in there. As well as that, you have Lydia's relationship with her mother, which is another really intriguing aspect of it. And you have to give credit to Maxine Peake, who plays Lydia's mother, who says an awful lot despite having very little dialogue. It's a very expressive performance from her, and a very strong one indeed. So... There's a lot going on, and while it's a slow burner, it's a film that really implants in your mind. Uh, This is helped by the fact that it looks just terrific. There's this kind of stripped-back banality to it, Uh, and I mean that in a good way. I mean, uh, a lot of credit needs to go to the painstaking cinematography work from the director of photography, Agnes Goddard, as well as a haunting and enchanting score from Tracy Thorne. So it's a challenge. It's perhaps not for everyone, but it's very well acted, very well put together, and ultimately a very rewarding piece. film we're going to be looking at on the show today is The Salvation, which is from Danish director Christian Levering. It comes this western starring Mads Mikkelsen, Eva Green, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, and Mikael Persbrandt. Where's my brother? Mr. Delarue, I can assure you, it ain't nobody from around here. I will give you two hours to find the man that did this. That's impossible. Or you bring me two of your people. I'm innocent, please don't! in peace princess i will take care of you now and we could use people like you for ever gonna face that murder aren't you two soldiers back where you came from i need a revolver a holster and some ammunition for my winchester did you ever fight no i did who was the enemy germans you have my respect 
1870s America. Mickelson plays John, a Scandinavian immigrant who spent seven years apart from his wife and infant son, building a life for them in the States. On the day they arrive in America, they encounter two rather unpleasant characters. Unpleasantness occurs, which eventually leads to John killing the two men. Unbeknownst to John, the brother of one of the men he killed is Jeffrey Dean Morgan's Delarue, who is the leader of a pretty sinister gang of murderers, including, for some bizarre reason, ex-professional footballer Eric Cantona, who don't take kindly to John's actions. So the Western genre is obviously a well-worn path, and it's one that's had its golden age with films of John Wayne and John Ford in the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, had a resurgence in the 1960s with the spaghetti westerns, and now, of course, you kind of have the neo-Western with films like No Country for Old Men or things like Desperado. So it's a classic genre, it's been around for the better part of a century, and consequently, it's very difficult to do something new with that genre. The Salvation kind of realises this and doesn't really try to do something new, but rather attempts to honour all of these classic tropes from the genre. So you've got the lone gunman on the quest for revenge. You have Jeffrey Dean Morgan, who seems to be channeling El Guapo from The Three Amigos as this sinister bandit holding a small town to ransom. You have Eva Green offering her kind of mute interpretation of a version of the hooker with a heart of gold. Uh, you even drop in like those classic nods to Sergio Leone with the shot going through the doorway. I mean, all of that is there. So... It's kind of a film that is cobbled together by loads of things that you've seen before from other classic westerns. I mean, you know, you could call it a, a homage to these films, but it, I mean, it's so much of a homage, so much of it is reference, it goes to almost ludicrous degrees. So despite the film barely having a, an original thought in its head, I have to say I actually like the film an awful lot. It gets off to a cracking start. I mean, the opening 20 minutes in which John tries to shield his family, who are literally just off the train, from these unsavoury characters they're stuck in this stagecoach with is, is just tremendous. It's uncomfortable, it's foreboding and intense. It's a real masterclass in grabbing your attention in the opening moments. Having this quiet, ominous hero, it's obviously helps when you have an actor as intense as Mads Mikkelsen in the lead role. I mean, he is an actor who wears his emotion on his face perfectly, so he fits that role of the quiet, mysterious gunslinger very, very well. This film almost plays out like an origin story for the man-with-no-name heroes of the Sergio Leone's films. He's also backed up by a very strong support cast. Jeffrey Dean Morgan is having a blast in this kind of moustache-twirling bad guy role who's very, very intense, very, very brutal, but uh, you can tell that underneath all that he's having a ball. Eva Green is also uh, very strong. You can tell she's uh, perfected her icy glare in this mute role. And also uh, Mikael Persbrandt is uh, really great as John's brother and deserves a lot of credit in a kind of, in a, kind of a smaller role, but he does a with it. So it's a rough and tumble kind of film. It's uh, very straight-faced and grisly with its violence. Uh, there's nothing really original about it, although I do kind of like the idea of this being an origin story to those classic Western heroes. But with terrific performances and a really electric opening 20 minutes, it, it means I, I mean I had a complete blast watching it. So The Salvation is one again. If, if you're looking for a throwback to the classic Western films of the past, you could do a lot worse than going to see The Salvation.
that's going to do it for this week's festivities. Be sure to check out episode 44 of the Hi-Hat Film Podcast. It should be available within the week of this coming out. It's a Hall of Fame submission featuring Rob Fuller. Fans of the show will remember Rob as the first and so far only person to unsuccessfully submit a film for the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. So he's back on the show in a quest for redemption and he is making a case for Whiplash, the Oscar-winning film about the cutthroat world of jazz drumming, which was in theatres recently. Will Rob's case be quite my tempo? You'll have to catch that show to find out. If you would like to be on the show submitting a film you love for the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame, drop me an email. It's hihatfilmreview at gmail.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter at hihatfilmpod and you can join in the fun and games over on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash hihatfilmreview. Until next time, I've been Michael Clancy. I'll leave you with the final words of Gandalf the Grey as he's dragged into a bottomless pit by the Balrog in The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Fly, you fools! My 